Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. We are so grateful to be here. I, I don't want to take a lot of time with uh, preliminary remarks just to get to the Word this morning. As you know, I, I love the Scripture. I think the Scriptures are our only hope for stability in daily, in daily living. So I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's move there this morning and work on this passage to see what we can find out about a message worth repeating. I want to read just two verses, but I want to refer to the whole chapter. So if you'll keep your Bibles open, um, I'll help you cover most of this chapter, which contains that famous phrase that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in an hour Uh, that you're not expecting. So we're going to deal with that this morning. Essentially, we're going to deal with uh, the eschatology, which is the theology of end times and ethics, which deals with how we live our daily lives. So we're going to get into this message this morning and deal with that. Here's what the scripture says in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, You fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We don't have to guess about Peter's motive in writing the book of 2 Peter. He is writing with two purposes in mind. Number one, he has a strong desire to remind the believers of who they are and what they have in Christ. He's going to remind them, and if you follow Second Peter, go through it, you'll see he uses these terms more than once. I want to remind you. I'm writing this to remind you, to bring this to your remembrance. But secondly, he knows that his departure is at hand. He wonders what will happen to the church when he's gone. So he writes to restate some essentials of the faith, hoping that the church will hear and will heed his word. In 1 Peter, there's a general epistle that does not have the sort of the tenor or the or the emphasis of the second epistle. In the second epistle, this is what's happened. From the first to the second, Peter has been carried away from Jerusalem to Rome. He is under arrest by the Roman Emperor Nero, who is a tyrant. He is a few days away from being hung upside down on an X-shaped cross. He's not as old as I am right now, but he has in his heart the heart of an elder, the heart of a bishop, the heart of an older Christian statesman. And he writes back to the church. In the first chapter of Second Peter, he writes to remind them, to remind them of the prophecy or the value of prophecy. But here in this third chapter, he writes to remind them of how their belief in the second coming and living right go hand in hand. In the middle of it, in chapter two, he puts a tirade against false teachers and claims that those false teachers have adulterated the truth of God's word. Here in chapter 3, he turns back to his key thought. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people 
ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? This chapter is really one of the highlights of the New Testament of the Bible. When you're talking about the second coming of Christ. But in reality, in this chapter, there's more about ethics than there is about eschatology. There's more about how we should live in light of the second coming than there are details about the second coming. Peter doesn't deal with all the details. He doesn't deal with when the rapture takes place or when the tribulation takes place. He just makes an announcement. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in an hour that you don't, do not expect. And that's all the detail he gives. To him, that's the most important thing. The second coming of Christ is of utmost importance to him. He doesn't bother with all the details of it, but he does bother with the details about how we should live. He enters into details about how we should conduct ourselves in light of the truth of the second coming of Christ. So we're going to enter into this chapter this morning. First of all, we're going to accept the fact of the second coming of Christ. Let's look carefully to the references in this chapter chapter 3 of Second Peter, about the second coming. Peter presents the statements of the mockers of the Christian faith. They ask this question. We've heard about his coming for all these years. Where is the promise of his coming? In other words, when will the promise of his second coming be fulfilled? They're questioning the time They're questioning the method. They're questioning the way of the second coming of Christ. When will it all occur? Well, Peter says there are some signs that the second coming is imminent. First of all, he says, the fact that you're mocking the second coming is a key sign that the second coming is imminent. Now, keep in mind that Peter talks about the last days. We've been talking about the last days for 2,000 years now. In Peter's mind, the last days refers to the, refers to the last dispensation that God has for his church. It doesn't refer to just that period right before the coming of the Lord, but it refers to the whole period from the cross of Christ on. Because in Peter's mind, any time after Jesus rose from the dead, he could possibly come back. So he, he doesn't buttonhole the time and say, well, this is the particular time or this is the particular time. He just says, if you're living under the grace of the cross and if you're living in the power of the resurrection, then the next step you take could be the last step you take because the next step you take, you could be walking on streets of gold. He says the coming of the Lord is imminent because the Lord has risen from the dead and the Lord has gone into heaven and the Lord sits at the right hand of God making intercession for our sins. And the promise of the Lord is sure He could come at any moment. From Calvary on, this entire period from the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, these are the last days. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night at a time that you do not expect. And then Peter says, 
Another sign of the last days is that the present heavens and earth are kept by His Word. They are reserved by His Word for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The God who created the heavens and the earth has a plan for them. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, when this plan is completed, it will be the second coming of Christ. So he says, we look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Verse 13. A time when the ungodly will be destroyed. And a time when the righteous will look to the future as a promise of redemption that is rock sure even now. The heavens and the earth speak. To the second coming of Christ. The third thing Peter tells us in verse 8. Is that God's not bound by time. For with the Lord. A day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as a day. God's calendar doesn't look like yours. Your calendar has little spots for days. And weeks and months and years. And your calendar is linear. Going from this to that. God's calendar is eternal. And He doesn't count time like we count time. He counts time to the point that He's ready. How God will be ready is up to Him, not you or not me. So no one knows the day nor the hour for the second coming of Christ. Nobody knows it. There will come a point where where God will say to Jesus, step out on the edge of the clouds. And God will give the direction to the archangel, give a shout and blow a trumpet. And the heavens will split and the glory of God will appear like Jesus appears in Revelation chapter number 19, verses 10 and 11, when he comes forth riding on a white horse and every eye shall see him. Behold, he cometh with clouds, the writer of the Revelation says. And it will be at the exact moment when God's ready. Because God's timing is His own. But we know this from verse 9. God's delay does not indicate slowness. He delays, but He's not slow. How can He delay and not be slow? Well, He delays because He's showing patience. Because we're a pretty obstinate bunch. We need time to be forgiven. We need time to get our act together. We need time to get our lives in line with His work. So He pushes the time out a little further to give us a little bit more time to come into His holiness and His righteousness and His glory. So we know this, the second coming will be at an unexpected time. Peter compares it in verse 10 to the work of a thief, stealing. If you've ever had your house or your car broken into, especially pilfered in the middle of the night when you were asleep in the house and the thieves came in a different part and stole stuff while you were asleep, you're taken by surprise and you feel so violated. It's hard to even explain how Empty you feel in the morning, even though the things they took might could be replaced, although we've had stuff taken that could never be replaced because of the memories connected. So he uses that 
symbolism. He says, just like that, just like that, just like how you would feel if you woke up in the morning and found out your house had been pilfered while you were asleep, just like that. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night and will snatch away those that are his own. In a moment, the God mockers will be destroyed and the righteous will dwell in the presence of God. Wow. So we know there will be a second coming. And secondly, we know that there will be opposition to the truth. (laughs) We know that all along the way, people are going to oppose the truth. Could, Could I just announce something to you this morning in case you haven't picked it up this week? As Christian believers, we are living in a time where there is opposition to the very base of our faith. And where the very the very base of our faith, the Bible itself, is being attacked, slandered, mocked, libeled, twisted on every hand. We're living in a time of opposition to the truth. While the disciples walked with Jesus in Judea and Galilee, they they were opposed by the Pharisees. When Peter walked and and shared the gospel all throughout Galilee and Judea during his time of life before he was carried away to Rome. He was opposed. Even at this very time, opposition is coming his way. He's about to be beheaded. He's an old man who's lived his life for Christ, about to give it all for Jesus because of opposition to the truth. Here's one key lesson I've learned from Peter. We are to, to expect those outside the faith to oppose us. Our faith must be strong enough to withstand any attack. Attacks will come. If you're attacked, it's not because you're, you've been singled out. It's just because you're a believer. And believers will be attacked. And I'm telling you, the longer you live, the more you'll be attacked. And the stronger your faith, the more you'll be attacked. And that's a lesson from Peter that says, you don't think it's strange when you face the fiery trial that will come upon you. It's just going to happen. You're going to deal with it. You're going to to know that your faith is stronger. The one who lives inside you is stronger than the one who opposes you. He'll help you. Peter warns us in Verse 17, that we know we're going to face opposition. So we need to put up our guard. Put up our guard. Wow. If we put up our guard, we will not be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. Or as the contemporary English version says, we will not fall from our own steadfastness or fall from our secure position or lose our balance. We will not fall from our firm grasp on the truth or lose our secure footing if we will just guard ourselves against those attacks. A difficult problem in this area is addressed in verse 16. If you look at that by Peter, there is such an effort on the part of the untaught and the unstable to destroy, to distort the truth of God's Word. For sure, these people will be destroyed. Both Paul and Peter knew the problems caused by distortions and And the work of the enemy to bring about erroneous teachings. It's happening today. It's happening today. But thank God for the truth that has been implanted in our hearts by His Word and by His Spirit. 
Because with His truth in us, we will not, we will not fall to the enemy. The third thing we know is that we determine to be the right kind of people. Before we talk about what we should do, and we'll finish the message talking about what we should do, let's talk about what we should be. And to do this, let's go back to 1 Peter, chapter number 2, and beginning in verse number 9. What we should be. Peter says, you are a chosen race. I feel kind of like Peter this morning. I'm an old guy who's loved you for many years, who's come back around, itinerated back around, to give you a word. And my word is nothing new. It's just trying to get you to remember. Trying to get you to stir up your memory down deep inside you. To get you to remember how good God is. And one of the things that I've preached all these years is I've preached to you, you're not who the world says you are. You are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You're the holy people of God. You're God's elect. You're God's anointed. You're God's chosen That's what Peter says here. You are a chosen race, a chosen people, a chosen generation. There's not an indicator here that Peter means Caucasian or black or Asian. He's indicating that we're a people out of all earthly races that have been chosen by God to receive this glorious salvation that has been offered because Christ died on Calvary. How wonderful it is. That's who we are. We're chosen by God to face this time. Every one of us has been brought to the kingdom for this day, for such a time as this. Peter says in verse 9 of of 1 Peter 2, you're a royal priesthood. In other words, you've been elevated. Elevated to a position of sonship where you're a son and daughter of the king of kings. There's royal blood flowing through your veins. God is your father. Jesus is your elder brother. You have access to the throne of God day and night because of our father-son relationship with him. We cry, Abba, Father. We come to him in the most personal moments, at 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 the most inopportune times, and yet he hears us and answers our prayer. Verse 9 continues, you're a holy nation. Our earthly citizenship, oh, that could be in more than one of more than 200 countries in the world. But our faith has given us a citizenship in a new kingdom. The kingdom of God, one that will not pass away. In that new kingdom, we share a common language. It's the language of the love of God. And we share a common Heritage. Abraham is our faith father. Jesus is our savior. We share a common lifestyle because the Bible is our guidebook, our all-sufficient rule of faith and conduct. And we share a common destination. We're on our way to heaven. And it might be today. The fourth thing Peter tells us in verse 9 of First Peter 2 is that we're a people for God's own possession. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We, we have committed ourselves to God's love and God's keeping and God's care. We've become His love slaves, giving ourselves to Him 
body, soul, and spirit. We've given back authority to God over our lives, our all. We are His unique possession. That's who we are. Now let's talk about what we should do. Hopefully, what we do will flow out of who we are. But that didn't necessarily happen in Peter's day, or even in Paul's day, or even in Jesus' day. For in Jesus' day, who Judas was conflicted with what Judas was. We really do need to ask the question, how would Jesus conduct himself in this day if he were alive? What would he do? What values would he hold? How strongly would he keep himself in the faith? Our issues are a little different than in the time of Peter, in the time of Christ. It's no, no more difficult, no less difficult. No matter how bad our president is in some ways, or good he is in some ways, he doesn't compare in any way to Nero, who was an idiot. A devil-crazed madman. A devil-crazed madman who fed Christians to lions just for the fun of watching the lions eat them. Who burned his own city out of spite and hate. And that's the person that Peter was serving under as the leader of the Roman Empire. That's the person that he had to pray for according to Romans. Pray for those who have rule over you. How could he do it? That's the life that he lived. Our, our issues are a little different, but not any harder than what Peter faced. So we look to his list to say, if you're facing a really difficult time, what should you do? If you're facing a really hard time, if the government's on your back or breathing down your neck, what should you do? If your Christian faith is no longer faith that's honored in the land, what should you do? Number one, back to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. We should look for and we should hasten the coming of the day of God. Now, I told you that this whole thing is in God's timetable, so how can we hurry God up? Well, we can do just what you showed on the board a few minutes ago. You can get involved in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth because this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness, and then shall the end come. God's patience indicates His mercy and grace until a few more come to know Him, and it could be today. Secondly, we should be continually looking forward for a new heavens and a new earth. We do not live in the ultimate kingdom. This is not the best place in the world to live. This is a temporary home at best, in spite of all the wonderful stuff we have. Because there is laid up for us in heaven a place. John 14, 1 calls it a mansion. Some of your translators call it a room in God's house. I don't care if it's a corner in glory land. Wherever Jesus is, I want to be there. And that's my home. And that's my expected place. So there's an expectancy in me every day. My home is not here. My home is with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Number three, verse 14 We should be found by Him 
in peace. Living a peaceful life includes harmonious relationships and friendliness and freedom from molestation. This church should be a safe place. Your home should be a safe place. Your presence should be a safe place. Your confidence should be a safe place. You, as a Christian believer, should be a a beacon of safety and care for those about you. Because in this lost world, people are looking for someone that's safe to confide in and talk to. Number four, we should be spotless and blameless, verse 14, in this present world, spotless. Remember, Peter asked the question in verse 11, seeing all these things are going to come to pass, what kind of people are we to be in conduct and holiness? And in verse 14, he says, be spotless and be blameless. Spotless means pure. One writer says it means unstained by our associations with the world's systems. Another writer says it means keeping the commands of God without alteration or amendment. Another writer says it's free from defilement. Those are things I want to describe you. I want for you to have as a description of your life. When someone says, look at that person. Yeah, that's a person that's spotless. Free from defilement. There's not an evil bone in his or her body. Oh, isn't that probably the best thing anybody could say about you? That you live in such a holy and godly way that your life is blameless, spotless? Blameless. Blameless without a charge that sticks. It it doesn't mean you're not going to be blamed because Christ was charged, but He was blameless. Christ was assaulted, but He was blameless. Christ had the devil bring up all kinds of things against Him, but He was blameless. He didn't do one of them. He was without sin. There might be a lot of charges leveled at you, but don't let any of them stick. Be blameless. There may be people who say all kinds of evil against you. Blessed are you when people say evil things about you for. They did the same thing with Jesus. But live a life so that none of those evil things stick. The fifth thing, verse 15. We should regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. The contemporary English version, I love it because one of the profs that served with me at Central Bible College helped helped to translate this translation, Dr. Don Johns. It says, don't forget that the Lord is patient because he wants people to be saved. Remember that short verse that says, God is not willing that any should perish. That's in John 3, but it's also in 2 Peter. He wants everybody to be saved. The Good News Translation says, look on our Lord's patience as the opportunity He is giving you to be saved. And the message says, interpret our Master's restraint for what it is. Salvation. God's giving you time. And number 6, verse 18. We should be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. That's what Rick said just a moment ago. And Pastor concluded also from this pulpit right before I came up. That you've been in a growth period. A discipleship period. Baptizing believers and growing. All of us should be involved in Christian growth activities. We should all be reading the Scripture daily. Seeking God We should all be committing ourselves over and anew every day to Christ. 
Here's the old man who's just dropped by to remind you of some of the essentials of the faith. Don't depart from them. Keep on growing until the very day you draw your last breath. Don't quit growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Well, we've covered this chapter. I've taken it apart for you and tried to put it back together. The key thing to note in this chapter is how Paul ties two great concepts together. On the one hand, the second coming of Christ. And on the other hand, ethical, pure, holy living. Early this morning, the thought began to run through my mind. I don't know if it was from God, from lack of sleep, too much sleep, needing to go to the bathroom. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it was from. You know those thoughts that run through your mind? The thought was, you can know everything there is to know about the second coming of Christ and be living like the devil. I kind of shuddered. Because, you know, I've studied prophecy quite a bit. You folks asked me to teach Revelation four times in the 24 years I was here. I went over. You know, I taught through books of the Bible. Well, I taught through Revelation four times while I was pastor of this church. And some of you were asking me when I left to teach it again. I'm like, next time I'll teach in Spanish or something. I don't know. <laughs> you must not be getting it or something. I'm just back to remind you. It makes a difference how you live. Just having knowledge is not enough. You've got to put it to practice. Truly, that's where I want to end this message today. Do I believe Jesus is coming in a moment? In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised and we shall be caught up to meet him in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Do I believe Jesus is coming? Do not be ignorant, brethren, but comfort one another with these words. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Do I believe Jesus is coming? Yeah. Do they throw rolls at Lambert's? Yes, I do. (laughs) With all my heart. By the way, there's a restaurant over in Michigan called the Flying Biscuit. Guess what they throw? (laughs) I believe Jesus is coming. And I came here to remind you of that. But I also believe that that impact of the coming of the Lord ought to have an impact on my life. And how I live it. Here's what one Bible commentator says. He says, our eschatological expectation has a bearing on our ethics. That means our expectation of the coming of the Lord. Lack of any real expectation of the return of Christ in judgment can diminish our resolve to live a Christ-like life. I believe we need to balance both of them. Could you bow your heads with me, please? Father, I believe life is going somewhere that This life doesn't end when we die. We just take a turn into your judgment and then into eternity, saved or lost. And for fear, Lord, that someone sat under the sound of my voice this morning without knowing you as Savior and Lord, without having their tickets stamped for heaven, without knowing where they were headed in the future. I cry out to you, Lord, don't let anyone leave this room without knowing you as Savior and Lord. While your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed for just a moment.
you believe this great truth of the second coming of Christ, then you must believe that it makes a difference how you live. Are you living for Jesus? No, pastor, I'm not living for Jesus. My friend, if that's your statement, you need to lift a hand and say, pray for me because I want to get my life back right with God. Could I see your hand this morning? God bless you. How many more? God bless you. Pray for me. God bless you. God bless you. Father, you saw the hands that were raised. Not of my own doing, but your doing, Lord. Your spirit's in this place, bringing people to the knowledge of Christ. Father, I pray that those who lifted their hands will find a way to pray and seek you before it's too late. Amen. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information, please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.